listening to Shoot It Now, your weekly podcast about indie filmmaking and big-budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another Shoot It Now podcast. My guest today is Thomas Robert Lee, a Canadian filmmaker with a real eye for detail. His latest film is called The Ballad of Audrey Earnshaw, which was selected for this year's 2020 Fantasia Film Festival. Thomas, welcome to Shoot It Now. Thanks for having me. Well, congratulations on your new film and being not only selected in Fantasia, but also other film festivals. We'll get to that very shortly, but first I want to find out about Thomas Robert Lee, the Canadian film director. Your debut feature film was Empyrean back in 2016, but let's go back in time to when the seeds of filmmaking first entered your thoughts and what prompted you into picking up a camera. So let's talk through those early days and how it all started out for sure well i grew up just a huge film buff um it was kind of a film family like friday nights we'd go to blockbuster rent a movie my sister and i watched a lot of stuff growing up together you know like the early tim burton movies steven spielberg that sort of thing but uh when i was in sort of middle school early high school is when my parents got a video camera and i ended up using it like my friends and i would make make movies on weekends and during summer vacation and any opportunity I had during uh, during school to do a some sort of video project as opposed to like a term paper or something, you know, for doing studying Romeo and Juliet in English class, I would do like a, a video of it at the end in terms of a, like a final project. So yeah, that's kind of how it got started. And who were some of your early influences? Oh, when I was a kid, it was lots of stuff like, you know, Tim Burton's Batman, Beetlejuice, Poltergeist, then a lot of, uh, you know, like martial arts movies. I was really into Jet Li movies and Jackie Chan for a long time. And when I was sort of really started to get into film and sort of started to discover, you know, like art house films and more independent cinema when I was in about grade nine, grade 10, it was, it was filmmakers like Sofia Coppola, because that was around the same time as like The Virgin Suicides and Lost in Translation, some Steven Soderbergh stuff like Traffic, uh, like Terry Zweigoff's film uh, Ghost World was a really big, big special movie for me at that time. Uh, Wes Anderson's film Rushmore, you know, 1999, 2000, 2001, when I was really sort of discovering that film could be something else as opposed to just a, uh, you know, like a lot of the Hollywood stuff that, that I was seeing at that time. You mentioned Lost in Translation. Man, that is almost like a bit of a blueprint on how to get cranking along with independent filmmaking. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great, great film. Actually, I just watched it again recently during the uh, pandemic quarantine. And talking of that, what's happening in Canada right, right now around filmmaking with the pandemic? Well, it varies province to province. Um, some are slower to open than others. Ontario is, they're sort of ramping up at the moment. My fiance, she's a, she's a costume designer. She's worked with me on my last uh, two films. So she's currently uh, back to work, but they're, you know, they're being super careful about uh, everybody wearing PPE, hand sanitizer, all that stuff. And it's the same in British Columbia. Uh, there's a bunch of shows and uh, series that are, are gearing up to get back into production. And do you know what the process is for all of that, i.e. are they going into quarantine for two weeks, bundled together and then going on to film? What I've heard, it's been very uh, minimal people on set. They've had to recast some, let's say that there's two characters in a film that have to share a kiss. 
I know that they recast one character in that film so that it could be somebody within that other person's bubble. And another buddy of mine who's an actor in Toronto, he's been auditioning for a bunch of stuff with his uh, with his girlfriend because they're a lot of they're just trying to take all this into consideration in terms of keeping the bubble as small as possible. Which, as you know, making a film like that's it's kind of an insane thing to ask given how many people are on set and how crazy it can be at times. In New Zealand, we are in a different position to the rest of the world. So once you go through an initial landing at New Zealand, going into quarantine for 14 days, you then just go about your life as normal. So we are in a much different situation to the rest of the world and productions are coming to us as a result. I want to just go back to your film, though, since we're talking about COVID-19. How lucky are you that COVID-19 didn't turn up when you were halfway through filming your latest film? Yeah, that would have complicated things. And as you know, uh, anything that can go wrong will go wrong on a film set. So uh, yeah, it was a real blessing that uh, that it happened, you know, basically a full calendar year afterwards. We were talking to an American producer a couple of weeks ago who was telling us that there there are some productions that in this instance when COVID did arrive and productions were halfway through, they never got back up. They will never come back. That's the end of that particular film. Have you heard of such instances in Canada? I mean, I know that's a big fear for a lot of productions that came in uh, or that, you know, the pandemic hit halfway through their shoot. I mean, I think it just depends on the size of the show and whether or not they can afford to uh, to deal with all of the additional you know, expenses that are going to be uh, a necessary component of that uh, film's budget. I mean, it'd be super sad if that happened. Uh, I mean, super sad to happen to any production. I can't imagine what it would feel like to be uh, to be on one of those productions, knowing that you're just going to have to walk away from something that you spent so much time and put so much energy into. So when starting out as a filmmaker, you need ambition, drive, and a hell of a lot of determination to see a project through. When you first started out, what were some of the early learning curves that you encountered along the way? You know, I made a handful of short films and stuff uh, before I went into film school, but on Take Empyrean, for example, it was a huge learning curve. I feel like I made kind of every mistake that a film, a first-time filmmaker makes on that film which is ultimately what you need to do, right? You don't, I mean, I personally learned best from uh, from making mistakes. So it was stuff as simple as not getting enough coverage in a scene or realizing that something that's maybe clear on the page, because I write my own scripts, something that's clear in the screenplay doesn't translate well to, to the screen and trying to figure out, okay, how could I next time execute a similar idea in a more film-friendly uh, manner. So it was kind of all that, all that stuff. And then doing enough due diligence on people that you're, uh, you're bringing onto the project, uh, finding out whether or not you're going to gel with that person. Um, it was kind of everything. And how long did you go to film school for, Tommy? Uh, it was a two-year program. Um, it was a very uh, technically oriented film. It was our film program. It wasn't like, uh, you know, four years of uh, like academic film studies. It was very tech oriented where, you know, there's a class about uh, cinematography. There's a class about sound. There was a writing class. Uh, there was one class where we would watch, you know, watch movies weekly and you have to write a paper on it, that kind of thing. But it, yeah, it was really nice in terms of uh, like I went into film school. I didn't know the difference between, you know, a 60 or, you know, like a wide angle lens and a telephoto lens, stuff like that. So it was just 
very crucial for me in terms of learning the the real sort of nuts and bolts of it, despite having, you know, made videos and stuff with my friends prior to that. So let's go to your first feature then. Maybe just talk to the filmmakers that are listening that are perhaps at film school right now and the difference between going through film school, coming out the other side, and then the reality of making your first feature. And then when everything is pointed towards you as the director and that big leap, because it doesn't matter how well you think you know film and how well you excelled at film school, there is a big difference between helming your first feature. So maybe just talk through that jump from you graduate through film school, you're out the other end, and now we've got Tommy helming his first feature? Well, it was certainly a fantastic learning experience. And I was really fortunate to make the film with a lot of, uh, of my fellow uh, colleagues from school. So there was a lot of familiarity there, which was great in terms of helping ease any sort of, you know, anxiety and stress. Um, I mean, the most important thing, I think, when making an independent feature, especially something right out of school, is writing, if, you're, if you are a writer-director, is writing something that you know you can make on a very limited budget. So whether that means only a handful of locations or a very minimal cast, just trying to uh, keep the scope of the film tight if you can. And obviously there are exceptions to that where you see some filmmaker come out with the first film that's the most ambitious thing you've ever seen. In my experience, it was that was a really important thing was writing something that I knew I could shoot on a small budget with not a huge crew and with a fairly limited cast. And all the locations, the majority of the locations in the film were, you know, there was like my apartment or my, my parents' house, a uh, friend of the family's house, like that kind of thing. But really it was about working with department heads that are, try to find people that are more experienced than you and not being intimidated by that experience which is, I think, something that's, I mean, I've, I know I've felt that way before, where somebody's got, you know, a stack of, of films on their resume and you don't have any, and it's easy to feel intimidated by something somebody says when really you have to know that this person was brought onto the project for a reason, and it's okay to trust them and that you, you did bring them on for a reason. So I think it's equal parts, you know, the scale of the project, uh, trusting the people that you're working with, and putting as much into the prep of the film as possible. Like, I've heard other... I heard this great uh, interview with uh, Greta Gerwig, where she was talking about uh, making Little Women. And she was talking about how films, uh, she's a firm believer in films being made in prep. And I think that's a really uh, smart way to think about it. Another thing with surrounding yourself with really experienced people, people far more experienced than you when you make your first feature, is that you are reducing your workload by 50% as a director. So that is an incredibly huge time saver and something that you don't have to second guess. If these people are far more experienced than you, you can just push on knowing that they have that in hand. But somebody that you may be working with on a first feature that is out of film school, that workload is going to go up by 50%. So I think that that's a really important thing to factor in. Yeah, absolutely. Imperium is a sci-fi drama told in black and white about a man who experiences a psychic awakening after emerging from a coma. Firstly, why the story for your debut feature? 
I was thinking about the types of films that I like to watch and specifically thinking about first time films that did have an ambition about them that were still that sort of modestly scaled thing that I was talking about before. And so I was thinking about these films like Pi, Darren Aronofsky's first film or Primer, Shane Carew's first film. And so I, I, I knew I wanted to do something in that ballpark, like something that was maybe a bit surreal and definitely in the genre world and something that wouldn't necessarily be like special effects dependent, that was more sort of idea dependent and focused. So it was really about making the kind of movie that I would want to watch and then figuring out how could I put my own personal stamp on, on, this, on this type of story. I'm interested in the black and white choice for the film and why you decided to go that way. For sure. Well, it's a, um, in, the, in the film, the protagonist, his name is William Fisher. Like he has this um, awakening after this uh, accident and he wakes up from this coma. And really the whole thing is sort of a metaphor for, for his search for meaning. And it's very much, uh, there are religious components in the film. Like another sort of favorite filmmaker of mine is Ingmar Bergman. And I really, especially his religious films in the 1960s, like through Glass Darkly and uh, Winter Light, that kind of thing. So I wanted it to feel like this very timeless thing because I felt like thematically the search for meaning is a very, it's a, it's, a, it's a timeless quest in storytelling. And so I wanted the whole film to have this, this very timeless aesthetic to complement uh, what the film is about thematically. So the black and white was like a very, very early decision. And then it was also stuff like, very sort of classic wardrobe and formal compositions and any sort of choice I could make, I tried to filter through that theme of timelessness, that approach, that aesthetic approach of timelessness. And you shot it in aspect ratio of 185. What was the thinking with the choice for that? Uh, well, we, we shot on uh, spherical lenses and I wanted it to feel kind of because of the, the very sort of formal uh, visual approach. I wanted it to feel almost like Kind of like a painting you know like stan like a, a, some stanley kubrick's films like 2001 and uh barry linden some of the framing in those films were very influential on our uh, visual approach for empyrean so that was yeah i just wanted it to feel like especially on a, when you see it on a big screen just to feel like these big full frame paintings and there's a lot of attention to detail in the film uh, with the mood and tone that pierces quite clearly through it. How hard was it for you to get the tone of the film right? Good question. I mean, that was something that was really worked out in, I felt like the, the tone was very clear, in my opinion, the tone was very clear in the screenplay. And then, you know, having those conversations with, uh, with the cast and with uh, the cinematographer, especially just in terms of because it's a very uh, like a very visually oriented film, like in terms of uh, there are large sections of the movie that don't have any dialogue. Especially the last kind of thirty minutes of the film has has no dialogue. So having those in those conversations with the the cinematographer, his name is Bradley Stuckel. It was very it was very focused on not just the framing, but on like you know the type of camera moves, when to dolly, when to hold, uh, when to use a zoom lens how quickly, you know, dolly in, dolly out. Because um, the performance styles in the film are very naturalistic. And I'd say the other uh, major contributing factor to the tone of the film um, was the score. And so, you know, I had a, a playlist of music that I listened to uh, all throughout the writing process and throughout uh, prep. 
And then I showed a cut of the film with the temp score only once through with my composers. But then after that, it was, they were so, so instrumental in, in giving that film the tone that it has. And I want to come back to that. So the composers, because you didn't just have one, you had, was it four or five different people? Yeah, so it's this uh, band, they're called Young People, as in Carl Jung. They're a post-rock kind of uh, experimental, I wouldn't say a noise band, but uh, largely uh, instrumental. So I was, I was just a big fan of those guys. This is actually opposite of what I said before about somebody experienced. This was their first film score. Hearing their albums and talking to, to everybody in the band, I had zero doubts that they could pull it off. Yeah, the head, the sort of two guys that founded the band are Jordan Bassey and uh, Brian Buss. And then they brought on uh, Riley Marion and Darren Young. They're part of the band now as well. But they were the sort of four key, four key uh, writers. Really, they each had their own strengths and what they brought to that score. It was a fantastic experience. One of my favorite things about making that movie was working on the score with those guys. Well, I had a look at the film, and the reason I know that there were four or five of them was that the score just sounded really beautiful to my ear, which prompted me then to go back to the credits to have a look at who actually made this music, because it was so good. Yeah, so it was, um, they only play a handful of instruments in, this, in the score itself. You know, some of them were better at, uh, at writing for piano or for strings. And then any of the uh, like any of the string parts, uh, we brought in session players to to bring that to life. Yes, it was very restrained, but so effective through the music being restrained and not being too busy. Thank you. Yeah, I I, I love what those guys did. I think it it turned out fantastic. If anybody listening is interested, the the score is available on uh, on Spotify. Now, the opening of the film really sets up the tone and the style of the piece. Not always an easy thing to do, especially without dialogue, as you discussed. But I, I felt that you really achieved that in the opening of the film really well. The choices of the opening sequence without dialogue and slow motion set pieces tell us a little bit about the thinking behind that, how you were able to achieve that opening sequence. For sure. Well, the film opens with uh, the character's accident. It's this, uh, this horseback riding accident. At the time, I was really, I still am a huge fan of uh, Lars von Trier. He's one of my favorite uh, filmmakers. Uh, Melancholia and Antichrist were fairly, you know, they'd come out in the, in the couple of years prior to, to making Empyrean. And so I knew I wanted my film to open with a very sort of very striking, very sort of like painterly and cinematic uh, sequence where A, you know, you're setting up the given circumstances for, your, for the hero, but at the same time doing it, you know, with style and just trying to create something really visually striking and an opportunity for, for, the, for the composers to, to really announce what this film was going to sound like. And sometimes we as filmmakers forget to do the basics right. In your film, Empyrean, there is a moment when the protagonist is sitting in a lounge full of family members talking around him to each other. He is sitting very quietly on his own, looking at a ticking metronome. You have a slow push in on him looking at the metronome then reverse to the metronome, tick, 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 tick. Really good sound design, I thought, in, in the film. Then the freeze frame of the arm of the metronome, and then the glass, his drinking glass breaking on the floor. It shows when a simple idea is executed really well, it looks visually great, 
it seems you were really meticulous for what you were going for in any one scene. Tell us how you were able to achieve that. Well, that sort of, I think, goes right back to the to the idea of trying to do something in a very, very uh, limited scope. So knowing that it was, you know, like every independent movie ever, like we shot it in, you know, we could have used twice as many days as we as we had. Uh, we were still pretty fortunate. We shot it in 18 days. Just knowing that Bradley, the DP and I, we really wanted the film to have a very, you know, striking visual style because it doesn't cost anything to, to give the film a nice style. You know, it costs, it costs money to do big special effects or big stunt work, but, you know, to put the camera in the right place and spend a couple extra minutes on, on lighting and making sure that's all, all dialed in. This is a very micro-budget film. The only way we can, we can hopefully have this thing stand out would be to, to make sure all of those details, whether it was camera or sound or music or, you know, performance, just making sure everything was sort of dialed in as we could. So it was just, again, that a lot of time spent in prep like shot listing, shot listing. And then of course on the day finding out, oh, you know, you only have time for half of what you shot listed and then figuring out, you know, oh shit, how am I going to combine these other shots that I can't get into the shots that, you know, need to be prioritized. As mentioned, your second film got selected into Fantasia this year. The synopsis reads, set in a secluded and devout community where a mother and daughter are suspected of carrying out witchcraft because locals are suffering with failed crops, dying livestock and other difficulties, while the suspected family have no apparent ill effects. Can you expand a little more beyond that and why this story was important for you to make? Uh, For sure. So expanding on uh, the story synopsis, it focuses on um, a mother and daughter. The title character, Audrey, she's the daughter, and then the mother is Agatha. So it's really their relationship is the crux of the film. The world at large in the film is, you know, it's this devout religious community where people's crops are failing, the animals are dying, people are starting to get sickly. You hear that people have uh, begun to move away. However, on the outskirts of the town, there's this woman, Agatha Earnshaw, the mother character, whose crops are doing just fine. She's suspected of, of, of witchcraft in the eyes of this devout Christian community. And the sort of twist here is that nobody knows about, uh, about Audrey, the daughter character. She's a secret. Agatha has been mostly successful in keeping uh, Audrey's existence uh, from the community. So why why this project was it was it's it was kind of the same thinking as as Empyrean, where I wanted to sort of put my spin on on a certain type of genre story, and similar to Empyrean, it's a it's a story that's focused on family that uh, talks about religion. At the same time, I wanted to explore some of the other some of the other genre stuff that I'd always grown up loving, like the horror stuff specifically. So yeah, that's kind of the genesis of the project was a wanting to write a folk horror tale specifically, something like The Wicker Man with a mother daughter dynamic, because I was very much influenced by you know like Carrie or Black Swan, like these movies that have these great mother dynamic uh, mother daughter dynamics that are obviously very peculiar. Unlike your first film, it's a period piece. Uh, Tell us some of the challenges setting up the world to be authentic in this uh, period, this time piece. 
Well, I mean, that goes back to the whole thing about making sure that you're working with uh, uh, department heads that are really know what they're doing. And uh, so it was a, it was very much um, locations, production design and, uh, and costumes. Like that's where we knew that we had to uh, prioritize those elements in particular if we wanted to sell what this film was going to be. Not that we, that I wanted to like shortchange, you know, the other departments of budgetarily, but like if we we're going to sell this thing as a period film, like those were the departments that had to have priority over like, you know, a big lens package or something like that. So for costumes, my partner, Kendra, she was the, she was the designer and then uh, we ended up having to push the film uh, just, you know, for a lot of different reasons. And uh, she'd been booked on another production. So we brought in a co-designer. So his name was Ben. He sort of picked up where Kendra left off for the onset stuff. And I mean, Kendra and I had spent literally years talking about the palette of this film. Because unlike Imperium, this was a film that was shot in color, albeit one that has a very uh, limited uh, palette. And then once... Uh, the production designer was brought on. Her name was uh, Raven uh, Brash. It was the same sort of thing, like talking about the palette, talking about you know the style of this film, and just wanting it not to feel like a squeaky clean kind of period thing, but something where you know things are covered in dirt, and just really trying to sell that this is a, a community in decline. And where did you shoot the film? So we shot the film outside of uh, Calgary, Alberta. There's a lot of Westerns and period films that are shot in, in that part of the country. Um, stuff like The Assassination of Jesse James and uh, Unforgiven, like these great sort of very cinematic uh, Westerns. And a lot of times those productions leave their sets intact and whatever piece of land they're on, the owners will rent them out for subsequent productions. So we were able to, to get, it was essentially like a fully formed old Western town we had the run of it for our, we shot our, the whole production was shot uh, on location. We weren't going for so much of a Western aesthetic. So it was about, we painted the main Earnshaw house and then any of the sort of props and art direction were, were not Western was something that we talked about a lot. And did you have to go back were through any films that had shot on that location just to look at how they filmed it out? Or did you just uh, arrive and land at your, your own way of filming it? I'd seen a, a couple of them and um, actually Disney had just been on, on the location before us uh, shooting a, a movie called Togo with Willem Dafoe, uh, which I still haven't seen, but uh, no, it was pretty much just uh, the cinematographer and I, uh, his name is Nick Thomas, just scouting locations again and again. And, you know, at the top of the day and during lunch uh, before any scenes, just really trying to figure out, you know, how we can shoot these things to look their best, like depending on, you know, natural light or making sure that uh, we were giving the, uh, the actors room to really, because this thing, like it was going to live on the shoulders of the cast. So making sure that we weren't boxing in uh, any of the actors, like you can only, you know, work on this half of the room because the light's better on this, like really trying to, to find that happy medium between something where the actors were very comfortable in the blocking and, something where we could shoot it in a way that was aesthetically pleasing. And you wrote the screenplay. Can you share how your process works? For example, some people will start with a basic idea. Others will form a bit of an outline or a treatment, which could be anything between six to 12 pages. Other writers can just attack the keyboard. What is your process? Um, it's pretty structured. 
So it starts generally with coming up with uh, a concept, sort of who the, the protagonist is going to be, and then expanding that into almost like a, you know, like a one or two page long form synopsis, and then refining it from there, and then expanding that into, uh, like I'm big on uh, using index cards to map out uh, the screenplay. So then I can break it down into, you know, act one, the first half of act two, the second half of act two, and then act three. Once the cue cards are feeling like really good, you can track, you know, make sure these this character doesn't disappear from the film for too long and making sure that everything, you know, you're not going long sections with nothing happening. And then when uh, the index cue card uh, structure is feeling good, that's when I'll generally, you know, do a, a first pass on the script. And then I just I just rewrite and rewrite and do really sort of focused rewrites where it's not just sort of generally, okay, how can I make this better? It's like, okay, just focus on one character for this draft. And then the second draft after that will be just going to focus on this character and then maybe a draft on atmosphere or a draft on theme and really just try to kind of go over the whole thing with a fine tooth comb. And then if you, you know, if you have some great idea working on this character, that's going to affect this other character than knowing that you're going to circle back to this other character for a whole nother draft that's incorporating this new idea. So you've got your index cards up on a wall or on the floor. So you're able to see, you're able to move around those cards, get a very good sense of the story from the beginning to the end, what's happening in the middle. And at that point is when you sit down and you write your first draft. What's the process of your first draft? How do you attack that? Do you do you say, right, I'm going to write two pages a day? Is it something that you sit down and you just write until it comes out of you? How does that work? I, w- I want to do five pages a day if I can. <clears throat> and so I'll do it right in the morning. If I'm having trouble getting going, then usually I'll, I'll go through Spotify and try to find you know, some music that's going to maybe be, that I think would be the sort of vibe of that scene that I'm working on. Or um, I'm really big on uh, image sourcing uh, during the writing uh, process. So, you know, just going online and just going through websites like Pinterest or whatever, like just uh, any sort of image uh, collection sites where you can, maybe you'll see something that'll give you an idea for, oh, that would be a great uh, image in this or a great sparks an idea in some way. So really, you know, starting the day, you know, cup of coffee, trying to hit those five pages. And if you're getting stuck, like just really sort of dialing into music and and uh, any sort of like visual inspiration. I'm interested in all of the pieces and how they came together for you in order to be able to make the feature, your latest film. Was it the script that was chosen for both the Frontiers Film Finance Forum in Amsterdam and the Frontiers platform in the Khan market in 2008. And, and if it was, can you just explain how that, that process where you're taking a script to, to, to market, to pitch? Yeah, it was, um, I mean, it was definitely the screenplay that, uh, that got me in there. It, I did end up shooting a proof of concept for the film, but it wasn't until we'd attended the Amsterdam, uh, the financing uh, forum, where I got lots of feedback from people about, you know, there was good feedback on the screenplay and uh, notes about, uh, have you thought about this for the budget? Have you thought about that for the budget? But a huge note that we got from almost everybody was to uh, to make a proof of concept because that's just, it's a not everybody is somebody who can read something and then picture it in their mind. So just as a tool in terms of 
like for myself, really sort of figuring out what is this thing going to look and sound like, but also uh, as a means of attracting, uh, attracting financiers, just showing people that, you know, you can read the screenplay, uh, you can see my lookbook, but we also have this proof of concept to give you a, a strong indication of, of what the film is going to feel like. Yeah, attending uh, Frontiers, uh, it's open for anybody to submit to, and then they choose uh, a handful of projects to focus on. Uh, they're all quite different from one another. At least that was the case uh, the years I was there. There was like, you know, our movie, which was this occult horror film. There was a martial arts comedy. Like there, it was quite a diverse uh, selection. You get the opportunity to, to speak with all these uh, industry professionals who have, uh, you know, years of wisdom and also the opportunity to meet with other directors. Because I'm sure you know the feeling where it's, uh, as a director, you don't often get to meet and hang out with other directors because you're you're not like a cinematographer or a costume designer where you go project to project and work with a bunch of people. So even just as a as a social opportunity, it was it was great. So once you got this proof of concept, as a result, you got Telefilm Canada, Horizon One, Investor Group, and Epic Pictures all coming in to fund the film. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So it was that sort of thing where submit the screenplay, uh, the proof of concept, uh, budget, and, uh, you know, lookbook, sort of as much information as you can give to, to Telefilm and to these other financing bodies to be like, answer as many questions ahead of time before they even have the time to ask. You know what I mean? Yeah, so clearly your submission process worked. Some people view the whole submission process for any form of funding to be an area that they they don't feel strong and comfortable in. What would you say to filmmakers who hold this view, having gained a lot of success based on your screenplay and then proof of concept? Well, I think make sure that, that the screenplay that you're working with and all of the other supporting materials that you have, whether it's like hire, for example, hire a, a line producer to do a very detailed budget breakdown for you. Don't be intimidated for going after these funding bodies because they're there because they want to, to finance great movies. So attack these, these funding bodies with the strongest package that you can have and with the most, you know, to show them that you've, you've put in the work and that you're confident about it. I talked to other people and I know people who I went to film school with who have wanted to make a feature and they haven't quite made it yet. And the only way you're going to make a feature is if you make a feature. You just have to be kind of single-minded about it and at the same time uh, back up that single-mindedness with, with hard work. And I want to ask you a process for working with actors, Tommy. Are you someone who likes to rehearse in workshops at pre-production stage running scenes with actors or... Do you prefer to save that for the production itself? If we had the opportunity to, I would, I would love to do rehearsals and maybe not necessarily in like a, what you'd imagine as like a traditional theatrical way would be. But even if it was just, you know, the director, the cast members sitting at a table, going through a couple scenes and figuring out, you know, the subtext, each character's motivation, any sort of turns that occur in the script. Like, I, I don't want to micromanage anybody, but I also want everybody to be clear about what the mission is. So we had a, a, a little bit of opportunity on, on this film in terms of, uh, you know, talking through this stuff with, with the cast beforehand. But uh, just due to the nature of being a small budget movie, a lot of that was done on the day. So it would be 
me and the cast at the top of the day or, you know, before any scene that we were about to shoot. And then we would do the blocking and I would give them, you know, a couple notes. I want to see sort of what their first idea is. And if it's not exactly what I'm going for, then I'll make a notes or, you know, give an adjustment. But the most exciting thing is when they do something you're not going to, ex- you, you know, you weren't expecting. So your next feature, Tommy, what is it? Have you got any ideas? I've got a couple um, things rattling around um, and I'm, yeah, I'm doing a little bit of writing, but truthfully, nothing super concrete. It's been, uh, I don't know how you felt about uh, your own productivity during the pandemic, but I've had a little bit of a hard time focusing. (laughs) So it's really just been trying to fill the well. So just reading lots and watching lots and taking notes when I have ideas, but uh But yeah, that's kind of where I'm at currently. Well, Tommy, it was great catching up and finding out all about you as a filmmaker. I wish you the very best of luck with the ballad of Audrey Earnshaw. And thank you so much for coming on to Shoot It Now. Cool. Thanks for having me, Craig. You've been listening to Shoot It Now with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week. 